today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We're going to talk about uh, the Kanye thing a little later on. Also, back and forth with the LRT. Man, oh man, we tried to get Donna Skelly on today to talk about it, but uh, Friday uh, uh, at the ledge, and it, it, I guess it's tough to get a hold of them. And uh, at this point, we uh, do not have uh, confirmation of that, but we will certainly get you up to date on the statement that she released, once again saying that uh, Hamilton can spend this on transportation or infrastructure. I guess my question to that is, why do we have to waste our maintenance and infrastructure budget on, ca- on, on capital projects like this? Because what if we weren't building an LRT? Wouldn't those bridges and all those roads and all that stuff and the buses have to be upgraded anyway? So why do we have to blow the billion dollars that was set aside for a, you know, legacy or once-in-a-lifetime project? Why does ours go to fixing potholes? I don't get that. Even if we do try, unless, you know, we've got another stadium up our sleeve, another stadium up our sleeves or another... LRT uh, going up the mountain or something we're not aware of yet. But it just seems odd that we have to spend this, th- this money on, on crap that we should tax dollars should be spent on anyway. If there was no LRT, what would happen to our crumbling bridge? Wouldn't we get this stuff anyway? I mean, that's, that's part of the maintenance package. Are other cities giving up their capital projects because they need a pothole fixed? Or a bridge repair? That should be done anyway? I don't know. That's like spending your birthday money on uh, a new pair of rubber boots. All right, let's move on. Maybe that wasn't a great example. (laughs) Canada has introduced a new surtax onto steel imports coming into the country to stop any uh, uh, cheap steel from, I guess, overcrowding our market and, as the states say, ending up down in the U.S. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for taking the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. Marvin, before we start talking about this, can I ask you something about LRT? Certainly. I brought up the que- the point earlier on. You know, everybody says this money should be spent on infrastructure and da-da-da-da-da. Isn't that normal infrastructure maintenance? it's money that we would be spending anyway. Is there another capital project in the wings I'm not aware of? Well, there's an answer to both of those questions. Let me start with the easier one. That's the second question. Is there a capital project in the wings you don't know about? Well, it does seem to me there's a gentleman named Michael Andlauer who owns the Hamilton Bulldogs who has been wanting the city to build a new arena. And after we had our problems building a new football stadium, we've shied away from it. But he's promised to put some of his own money into it. And frankly, we've heard that Cops Coliseum, which is now 30 years old, is you know, suffering and under problems that way. So we do have a festering thing there. But, Scott, your other question, which is the more important question, is that Hamilton, like every other city in Ontario and, frankly, in the world, has what's called a deferred maintenance budget. simple way to explain this to you, you build a building. When you build it, it's supposed to have a 30-year life. At the end of 30 years, guess what? You should replace the building, but, hey, it's in pretty good shape. So we'll just kind of keep it going for a while. Maybe we can get 40 years out of it. Maybe we can get 45. But sooner or later, it's got to come down and a new building has to go up. And that's the infrastructure deficit that the city has. Now, we are spending, as a city, I think over $150 million a year. But our deferred maintenance budget is something close to $3.5 billion. So if you had that billion and you had no strings attached to it, other than you had to throw it at deferred maintenance, there's a whole lot of things that could get rebuilt, whether it is you know, a, a court building, a bridge, a uh, water infrastructure, 
there are things in here that you could be doing, but you say, well, maybe you can get another year out of it, and I, I won't do it this year. Does that mean it's a good idea to spend money that was designated for a capital legacy project like an LRT or a stadium that that we're using that on maintenance? Right. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, that has to be done whether there's an LRT or not. Right. So there is a little confusion here that why is the LRT costing a billion dollars? And to phrase that to you a little differently, it's about $10,000 a meter, about $10,000 a meter. It seems like an awfully expensive process just for running some tracks in the ground and putting a train on it. And that's because in this construction process, we're going down into the ground and replacing all the hidden infrastructure underneath the LRT. Simple reason why, if a water pipe breaks, you don't have a functioning LRT while you're trying to repair it. So you want to have everything under the LRT in as perfect and new a shape as possible and that's what we're spending the billion dollars on. So in a way, we are already taking a portion of that money, several hundred million dollars, to replace the infrastructure underneath it. That's why it got to this horrendous price tag. It isn't just to put the train and the tracks on the ground. And so I think they're saying, well, if we cancel the LRT and you go to bus rapid transit, you have buses running over the surface, you should still take the remainder and do things with your infrastructure that might have been done under the LRT project. Now you can do them separately. All right. Uh, it continues. Uh, let's talk about what happened yesterday uh, in, regard to, uh, in regard to tariffs. What is the reason for adding tariffs when we're uh, getting upset with the United States for doing the same thing? What's going on here? Well, first, if you don't mind, I'd just like to take it back a little bit, and then we'll deal with tomorrow, or deal with yesterday. Uh, back in June, we were visited by three cabinet ministers. They had a nice press conference down at the Stelco site, and this was a few weeks after Donald Trump had put tariffs on Canadian steel. Three announcements that came out that day. First, that Canada was going to put counter duties on as of July 1st. Christy Freeland delivered that. Minister Baines said we are prepared to provide low interest loans to, to businesses that may be having cash flow problems during this. And there was an HR minister there who said we're also prepared to put some money into retraining. And even if you have to you know, sort of somewhat downsize your workforce, enhancing the unemployment benefits, what have you, to bridge you through all of this. Then, in the middle of August, we were visited by Finance Minister Bill Morneau with great fanfare. He said, I'm here to start a two-week consultation process to see what other supports we need to put in place to help the steel and aluminum industry. Now, remember, that was the middle of August, so I was expecting right around Labor Day, boom, the Finance Minister would say, here's the extra things I'm going to do. But you probably weren't keeping track. He didn't say anything around Labor Day. Why? I think he felt that Christia Freeland was signaling that the new NAFTA, now the USMCA, was so close, we'll take care of the tariffs along with that. You won't have to put any support on. So we fast forward to September 30th. We sign the deal, the USMCA. We have dodged the bullet on new tariffs on automobiles, but the tariffs on steel and aluminum remain. So Mr. Morneau had to act, and that's what he did yesterday. He announced really two separate programs under one headline. Program number one is if you're a Canadian company, and for whatever reason you've had to be buying American steel, steel on which we have put a tariff, you can now apply to the government to get a rebate. Now, it's no guarantee each case is going to be done on a one-by-one -one basis, but you've heard stories, Scott, about some schools being constructed or other things that suddenly they're way over budget because of the cost of the American steel that they had to use. There was no Canadian equivalent out there. So this is what the government is saying, that for the next, I think it's 200 days or 210 days, they'll consider this, but on a case-by-case -case basis. 
And just for what it's worth, America has said the same thing to American companies who are having problems with their tariffs, and they've had 18,000 applications for rebates uh, down south of the border. Second thing he announced, and this is the more interesting one, is that we are putting safeguards. He doesn't like to use the T word. That's a Trump word, tariff. We're going to put safeguards. What does that mean? If you're somebody other than the United States and you are shipping an abnormally high amount of steel to Canada or shipping it at an abnormally low price, then we will put uh, <coughs> tariffs on you to, to try to even the playing field because we don't want your product dumped into Canada. And also, we don't want it coming into Canada and then suddenly being called Canadian steel and trying to work its way into the border uh, in the United States. I'm going to tell you that that initiative, I think that's much more about trying to make America happy and get them to cancel the tariffs. Right. They have been complaining in the United States for some time that foreign steel was sneaking in to the United States via Canada, somehow getting relabeled in Vancouver, and they, they wanted it put to an end. So if we want to make those tariffs go away, I think we had to do this, but we're seen to be doing it independently, not at Trump's behest. So, in other words, the U.S. wanted this. They were happy that this was happening. One of the concerns was that steel coming through uh, Canadian ports and ending up into the United States. When will the U.S. react to this? When will we see tariffs removed? Will this be enough to do that? This on its own, no. Uh, so I can actually tell you the form of the agreement that we're going to strike with the United States. It's going to mirror the agreement we made on the car industry. Uh, together, negotiating, we came up with a volume of Canadian cars that can come into the United States without tariff. And then if it exceeds that amount, yes, there will be a tariff of 25% put on it. The number chosen, the volume chosen, is actually above the volume we ship to the United States today. Right. So it even allows us to grow some. We're going to have to get uh, Mr. Lighthizer and Ms. Freeland back in a room, do a little horse trading. But that's what we're going to do with steel and aluminum. We'll agree to a certain volume that Canada can ship in, duty-free, and then the tariffs will remain, but only for that volume that exceeds that amount. I, I actually had been hoping that we might have that deal by Halloween, basically four weeks after the last deal. And I, it's possible it might take six weeks, but I think this sends a nice little signal that we are still serious about getting back to the table. And, and if there are hurdles, it helps clear it away. Mind you, remember, the staff is just exhausted after the USMCA. So maybe it'll take a little longer. But I, I'm really hopeful that we'll have this all gone before the end of the year. Is one tariff breeding another here? Well, in a, in a sense, because, uh, because we don't want the American tariff on aluminum and steel, we right. say to the United States, what's it going to take to make it go away? Now, one might be putting these uh, levels of steel that can be imported, these quotas into place, but the other one is to say, and we don't want you know, Chinese steel or Indian steel coming in through Vancouver and suddenly finding itself in the United States. You've got to tighten up your borders, Canada. And this, so this is the process because, obviously, again, Mr. Trump is calling the shots here with his use of tariffs, and for the moment we've got to play according to his game. Also keep in mind, it's just now three weeks away, three and a half weeks away, the midterm elections in the states. If the Democrats take over the House and if they take over the Senate or some combination, this may change again. But for the moment, assuming Republicans retain the, the hold on the House and the Senate, we've got to do this because Mr. Trump is still in charge. Why wouldn't Canada be doing this anyway? What is the advantage to letting this steel land on Canadian shores for Canada? Well, it, there really is no advantage to Canada letting it in. And, and before, <laughs> I hate to phrase it quite like this, but those companies were just shipping it directly to the United States. 
the minute uh, the United States put this tariff uh, wall around it of 25%, it isn't just on Canadian steel, but on all steel and aluminum imports, 10% on the aluminum, 25 on steel, everybody's affected. So suddenly, if I'm China, I'm India, how can I still get my stuff into their market, but I don't want to have to pay the 25%? Oh, Canada will take our steel without a big tariff on it, and then we'll do something here and call it Canadian and then suddenly send it down that way. So it, it wasn't a, a problem before. It wasn't a massive problem before. But now with this tariff wall the United States has, and remember, all we want to do is punch a little hole in that wall to let Canada into the market free, but that doesn't mean that Mr. Trump's dropping the tariffs on everybody else. Uh, it's a much more likely scenario, so that's why we have to close it up now. So this must be good for the Canadian steel industry, no? Yeah, I, I think it is. Now, uh, you've not actually heard a lot from the Canadian steel industry because a funny side effect of Donald Trump's tariffs has been a massive increase in the price of steel. We are almost at record high levels for a ton of steel. And, and I know DeFasco and Stelco don't really want to jump to the top of a rooftop and say, we're making record profits. But even though we like to think they're being hurt in terms of the volume of steel they're selling, when they do sell steel, they, they sell it at a very, very high price, almost twice as much per ton as they were getting about 18 months ago for steel. So, uh, you know, they don't really want to come out and say they need a lot of help because they're going to also announce pretty darn good profits in this year. But uh, they're certainly not upset with the idea of closing up the borders and, and giving more of can the Canadian market to Canadian steel producers. Is this making a lot of hay across industry in Canada? Is this big news today? No. Uh, uh, I hate to phrase it like that. No. no, because steel is really just a rather small part of the market. And I'm going to give you a parallel here, and people will be upset with me for doing this, but it's a lot like the dairy industry. You know, we, we, we hoot and holler about how this is going to maybe harm the dairy industry, but really as an industry, it's a very, very small part of the Canadian economy. The auto sector, that was what got us all scared. The auto sector, maybe 25% of the manufacturing jobs in Ontario are connected to the, the uh, uh, auto sector. But in terms of steel, it's a much smaller number. So it's a good thing, and certainly if I'm Mr. Trudeau, I'm sending a signal to business that I've got your back, I'm still here, I'm not asleep on this file. So, you know, those are important signals to send. But in terms of its real impact in the market, I think the bigger question today is, you know, when will the United States stop, uh, stop this silly selling off of stocks down there and causing that market to fall? There's no good reason for the terror that's been hitting those markets the last couple of days. There's no triggering event other than, oh, my God, long-term borrowing costs got over 3%. You know, once you get addicted to low interest rates on your money, you want to see it continue, but it's, it's really not the end of the world that has moved ever so slightly up. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor to Groot School of Business, McMaster University, Canada, introducing new surtaxes on steel imports uh, coming into the country. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Trump and Kanye West, man. I'm surprised Mark Burnett wasn't involved in this production in some way. Of course, the rapper went to the White House yesterday, uh, met with the U.S. president. I'm not actually sure what was to be gained from this visit, especially when uh, the people in Florida are uh, hanging on for dear life, trying to recover from uh, an almost Category 5 uh, storm, pretty much Category 4 when it hit uh, the coast of Florida. And here's this guy uh, having meetings and conversations like this one. People 
you have to be Democrat. I have a, uh, I've, I've had conversations that basically said that welfare is the reason why a lot of black people end up being Democrat. They say, you know, first of all, it's, it, it's a limit to amount of jobs. Uh, so the, the fathers lose the jobs and they say, we'll give you more money for having more kids in your home. And then we got rid of the mental health institutes in the 80s and the 90s and the prison rates just shot up. And now you have Chirac, what people call Chirac, which is actually our, our murder rate is going down by 20% every year. I just talked to the superintendent, met with Michael Sachs, that's Ron, Ron's uh, right-hand man. So uh, I think it's the bravery that helps you beat this game called life. You know, they tried to scare me to not wear this hat, my own friends, but this hat, it gives me, it gives me power in a way. You know, my dad, and my mom separated, so I didn't have a lot of male energy in my home. And also, uh, I'm married to a family that, um, you know, <laughs> not a lot of male energy going on. It's beautiful, though. But there's times where, you know, it's something about, you know, I love Hillary. I love everyone, right? But the campaign, I'm with her just didn't make me feel as a guy that didn't get to see my dad all the time, like a guy that could play catch with his son. It was something about when I put this hat on, it made me feel like Superman. You made a Superman, that was, that's my favorite superhero, and you made a Superman cape. For me also as a guy that looks up to you, looks up to Ralph Lauren, looks up to American industry guys. Non-political, no bullshit, put the beep on it, however you want to do it, five seconds delay. All right, let's let it go. Uh, yeah, it continues on like that for pretty much 10 minutes. Um, and many say brought up some interesting points, some good points, but um, uh, a little scattered beyond that. Alyssa Freeman is with us, public relations consultant, Huffington Post, Canada.com, PR Daily. You can read stuff there. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, hello, Scott. So what did you think when you saw this? Oh, it was like crazy means crazy. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You can't even really follow his stream of consciousness um, raving and ranting, uh, Kanye's. But I have to think that Trump could. And, you know, honestly, with, you know, people in South Florida, the devastation, you, you, all you have to do is watch 10 seconds of news and look at those images to see how horrible it is. And this is the time when President Trump chooses to have Kanye West and Jim Brown. I mean, how old is Jim Brown? I mean, yeah. he's not just a retired football player. I was trying to find how old he was before I came on, you know, in the office. So is this, you know, what we're supposed to, is this, are these the optics of Trump speaks to black people? Is that what this is supposed to be? And if they're going to, if he's going to be speaking to black people, is he going to be speaking to those that adore him versus those that do not? When I watched the news last night, and I'm looking at the different people that they interview, people of color, um, and P, uh, you know, white, white, everybody. And they were saying, you know, what did you think about this? And they went to some professors uh, at university, and he said, listen, you know, I'm black, and i got to tell you that having uh, Kanye, you know, uh, talk to President Trump is, is, is not going to influence the black vote by any uh, stretch of the imagination. So I just think it was sort of like an adoration fest. You know, uh, Trump loves to talk to people who adore him versus who oppose him, and he's got lots of people who oppose him. And this was just a moment where, you know, he had somebody in the Oval Office, 
first of all, imagine what I'm saying now in the Oval Office, hmm. um, just speaking his mind on how he would solve, how Kanye would solve the ills of the world. What about the look on Donald Trump's face? Because, uh, you know, I think in the... I tell if he was bemused, amused, or really didn't understand a word he was saying. Well, I think Donald Trump looked as confused as we all look when Donald Trump speaks. That's, to me, that's what got me. It's like, this guy's met his match. He was staring, looking at this guy, wondering what what the heck he was saying. But not only that, who else has commanded that much attention in that man's office? He was stuck with nothing to say for 10 minutes. I don't think he heard a word he said. I mean, he may have, but he just kept staring at the fact that he's going, this really famous black rapper is wearing uh, a mega hat, uh, Make America How can this hat. be bad? And how amazing is that? Look at that branding. I'm just going to, all the cameras are here, and they're all looking at him. And, you know, I, I, this is just the greatest day, one of the greatest days of my presidency. And I, I can tell you right now, if you don't watch Saturday Night Live, watch it this Saturday because this, oh yes, this is the skit. And I mean, you and I, Luke and I, here. were talking about that yesterday when who I was watching the clips of it. Yeah, Kanye. exactly. Who are they? They can bring in, you know, who's already on the cast. You know who they I bring think? In like a Chris Rock. I think it's Tracy Morgan. Will they bring in a Tracy Morgan? I don't know. I don't know if Tracy could do is well, maybe, but I th- like a. I don't know. But they can bring in any number of people who who would be able to do this. Yeah, yeah. It, that that's going to be the opening of the show for sure. Um, uh, who gains from this? Like you talked about Donald sitting there and just thinking, well, here's a guy with my brand on. What gets any better than that? How does this play with the base? I, I just think, I don't know. I, I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a mystery to me. Maybe they just think that, you know, this is just part of his celebrity and people like to be in his aura. And, you know, so, uh, hey, you know, our president does like black people. He just doesn't like Gomorosa, but he likes black people. So he has Kanye in, and, you know, he talks to people of all faiths, of all ages, of all colors. So he's our president. I can't imagine that it's any more simplistic than that. I mean, how deep can you go on these type of things? You know, since they, since Omarosa left. <laughs> You're absolutely go, right. How deep can we go? As I'm sitting here talking to you, I don't even know what question to ask you next. You know, and, and it, you know, when they got rid of Omarosa, that was sort of the, lack, the last black person on his, in his inner circle, and they haven't hired anybody to replace her. And, and maybe they never will. But when you have these meetings of him openly conversing with, you know, members that he feels represents black America, Kanye West, multi-million dollar selling artist. I mean, he's probably more interested in, in Kanye's fortune and what the, and that he's talking to a peer than anything else. And how they thought to get Jim Brown there. I, I, I don't know what type of balancing act that was supposed to be. Uh, was Donald Trump exploiting Kanye West? And I mean, by that I mean, I mean, lots of people have described Kanye West as a genius uh, in the music in- industry and such. But there's obvious, it's obvious there is some mental health issues there. He has said that. He's talked about that. Is Donald Trump exploiting that? Because that was not Kanye's best moment. Uh, I don't know. You know, honestly, do they even care that Kanye West has a mental health issue? I don't know. I, I, I can't even think that that was part of the equation until he started on his stream of consciousness rant, which was everything from we should play more basketball and while well, learning math and 
we should something about a new eye plane and uh, and even his comments in the past on slavery and I mean, then and you know when that and and that does not his comments on the black experience in 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 America it certainly does not endear him I think to the majority of the black population um, you know so I, I don't know what there was to gain other than when you look at it it's just something else taking his eye off the ball like honestly. Why isn't he down in Florida touring the ruined houses, throwing out paper towels, which is what he likes to do? You know, why isn't he, you know, having press conferences with FEMA? Why isn't he standing by Rick Scott's side? Why, you, you know, th- th- this is where you rely on a president. And honestly, I hate to say this, but tragedies are often a president or a prime minister or a head of state's definitive turning point. Yeah, that's the, that's when you win votes. You know, look what 9-11 did for Rudy Giuliani. Absolutely. I mean, we really see Rudy Giuliani's uh, true colors right now. But during 9-11, you know, he was, like, the next step would have been President of the yeah. United States. Yeah. Except, you know, at the time he had prostate cancer, so that put him out of the running. So... You know, a, a tragedy can do, and reaction to that tragedy, and an empathetic response, and an efficient response to a tragedy can define a presidency, and that's not happening. So you have to think, well, gee, the people around Trump, like, you know, why aren't they having them do this? Why aren't they being more proactive? Why aren't why isn't he down there? Typically, heads of state like presidents don't usually come and survey an area until it's absolutely safe. So. Normally, they go down like four or five days later, but still, you know, there's been no mention of him going down there, and I assume that, that he will. Well, I don't I know. Mean, if he goes I, to Mar-a-Lago, I mean, how, fa- how far away is it? Is there another shot of him lobbing paper towels at people? Well, uh, my goodness, I don't even know what it was. He says, we'll get these people money. They can have anything they want. We'll just do what we need to do. And honestly, he doesn't even really know how the whole thing works. Uh, obviously, as we commented, this is going to make great political hay by the weekend for uh, shows like SNL. Will the White House, probably are, are already, f- say that the media is focusing on stuff like this instead of what's really happening? And it reminds me of what Kanye said in that meeting when he, he said something along the lines of uh, he needs Saturday Night Live and the Democrats to improve how they present the president. He quotes, if he don't look good, we don't look good, he preached. As if it's everyone else that's making Donald Trump look bad and not his own actions or tweets. Well, you know, this is, you know, everybody's own perception is everybody's own reality, Scott. So, you know, you look at this and say, okay, well, the fact that the mainstream media is not making the president look good, therefore he's not looking good. I mean, how can you even go there? How can, I mean, you know, when people um, have to deal with crisis or image problems or brand image problems, you know, sometimes there's external forces. And other times, you know, you do it to yourself. It's a 50-50 proposition. It's something that you, that was left undone, left unsaid, pushed aside, and you thought that would never come back. Well, and well, obviously it does. So, you know, you can't make this stuff up. Honestly, you know, when... <laughs> When Obama was president, did you and I have these type of conversations? Here's the other thing, too. This is, and this has worked perfectly as being, you know, here we are questioning why is he doing this when there's a disaster going on in Florida? The reason he's doing this is what else could possibly distract us from what happened last week with the whole Kavanaugh thing? 
Well, you know, there's nobody better, quite frankly, than the Trump administration for turning the channel. Nobody. It's like you sit in a room every day and think, what can we do to turn the channel? And you need a big and, one and, to get off of last honestly, weekend. honestly, you know how you sit in those brainstorming meetings at work and you put down a bunch of, even if they're crazy, and then everybody has a right. sticky, and then you put your sticky by the idea that's the best? Yeah. I think that the craziest, the better. And nothing is never considered. So if somebody wants to say we need to turn the channel on this or we need to get people focused on something else, how many of those something else's have been like, what? And this is just another one of those. So how will, uh, you know, Kanye brought up a a valid point in the sense that, you know, everybody's assuming that all blacks in America are uh, Democrats. Uh, that's a valid point. However, how is this message resonating within that community, um, considering this is your option for a Republican? Uh, Is this message resonating within the Kanye West community? Well, I don't know. But I mean, I think maybe the Trump people would think that if people who like Kanye know that Kanye is a Republican, therefore they'll vote Republican too. And as you come up to the midterms, you know, any narrative, I guess in their case, is better than no narrative. So if you don't think that you're going to get the black vote out to the midterms, maybe, you know, by having Kanye for the young people, I'm telling you, this is, there's no more thinking that, uh, behind this than this, Scott. You have one black guy by Kanye for the young people, and then you have an older black gentleman for the, the older demographic, and that would be Jim Brown. Right. I mean, Jim Brown? Yeah. Do you remember when he played? He was a great football player. <laughs> no, you're right. he, well, it was interesting. Again, watching all the faces in the room as this was unfolding. Uh, how long does this remain uh, in the public forum? Until the next Until one, I guess. Night. At 11.40, it's gone. No, actually, that's a lie. Not at 11.40 after they do the cold open at Saturday Night Live. It will last because everybody does a review on what happens on Saturday Night Live now in the Sunday papers. Have you noticed that? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can read the Post, Washington Post, you read the New York you Times. You don't even have to watch the show. Just get the clips later. Yeah, well, you can get it an hour, You can get it even 10 minutes after. Yeah. You can be on Twitter. You know, this generate this generate news for 24 hours after that airing at 11.35 p.m. on Saturday night. And then it's on to the next. So is there any backlash from this? Is it over after the weekend? No, I don't think there's any backlash. I mean, there may be maybe some backlash against Kanye because some of his uh, deeply held beliefs are, I think, racist unto themselves. Um, and, and, and certainly, as I said, you know, his version of black history or the black experience doesn't really mesh with uh, many of those that at least I have read or seen on uh, TV on political shows. So... This is just another, you know, version of Trump administration noise. Let's move on to the next, and we'll deal with it as it comes. Is any of this on Donald Trump? Is it only Kanye that looks bad? I, at the end of the day, Donald Trump can I mean, say, "Hey, I didn't, he did I, I didn't say. I mean, he I, I, exactly. There. I didn't say it. He said it. I just invited him into the office. What's wrong with that? Exactly." Exactly. This doesn't like, as far as people, as, as the American uh, populace, you know, there are half the people who are scratching their heads going, what? And the other half going, well, we don't care. He had an audience with a prominent black man, and therefore he speaks for all of us. So, uh, and, it, you know. And this it, certainly has been a wacky enough story to take 
our, our attention off the one we were talking about this time last week. Again, turn the channel, turn the channel, turn the channel. Unbelievable. All right, Alyssa Freeman's been with us, public relations consultant, of course, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. As always, have yourself a great weekend. Thanks for your time. Oh, thank you, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here is the clarification right out of the mouth of the MPP from uh, Glambrook. Quote, I want to respond to recent suggestions in social media and elsewhere calling into question the Ford government's promise to allow Hamilton decide how the $1 billion transit and infrastructure allocation earmarked for Hamilton will be spent. Yesterday, I spoke directly with the Premier. We discussed the $1 billion commitment, and the Premier once again confirmed that the $1 billion funding can be spent on infrastructure, infrastructure and transit or solely on LRT. Nothing has changed as in many other areas since this government took office. A promise made is a promise kept. Hopefully after this latest uh, re, uh, re, uh, uh, reconfirm on the government's pledge, the matter can be put to rest, uh, signed Donna Skelly. So there you have it. Uh, the commitment once again from the Premier, uh, as per Donna Skelly, is it can be spent on infrastructure, infrastructure and transit or solely LRT to me this just to me this just it don't this doesn't change it this doesn't change anything for me and here's why because the government and what we pay taxes for is for infrastructure and transit so if we hadn't asked for an LRT uh, who would be building? Who would be spending the money on bridges and and, 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 and and maintenance for roads and infrastructure? The government would be. So why are we spending money that normally comes from maintenance budgets? Because all the roads need updated. Every city across the country. So why do we spend our money for a capital legacy project on stuff that is it's going to be spent on anyway? Because that's what governments do. They fix roads and build bridges. So unless we're going to put it towards a new arena or some other big capital project, you're putting your money to something that we're going to get anyway. To me, that's like getting the birthday money you got from your grandma, taking the 10 bucks you got from your grandma in your birthday card and spending it on underwear. Crap that your parents would buy anyway, because that's their job to keep you clothed. Starting with your gotchies. So there it is. You can spend it on infrastructure, unless you got a whole pile of new bridges you want to build. But again, you're not going to get them built unless it goes with government plans and they improve it all. So it can be spent on infrastructure, infrastructure and transit, or solely on LRT. I would suggest the first two of those options, infrastructure and infrastructure and transit, that's going to be done anyway. So why are we taking our money that we've allocated solely for a legacy project and now blowing it on stuff that the government would have to spend on anyway? So what this is doing is Donna Skelly giving Premier Ford an out. Why do we, we'll spend the billion bucks, but we're going to spend it on stuff that needs fixed and we would have to spend on any other town. Is Kitchener-Waterloo uh, running on gravel roads and potholes because they got an LRT? And they paid for theirs. A good portion of it anyway. Is any city that gets any upgrade like this, do they lose it by, oh, you know, I'm sorry that bridge fell down, but look at that, look at that LRT. Is that happening anywhere? 
So why is Hamilton spending the money that, you know, was set for something else on stuff that has to be done anyway and will be done anyway by the government of the day? There's the question. I would ask Donna Skelly if she'd agreed to come on the air with me today. But unfortunately, uh, she couldn't make that happen. All right, let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. No, he's not my second choice. Peter, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Are you surprised we are where we are? Uh, no, because there's not really been much logic in this debate, I think, since the start. I mean, uh, we just keep coming back to these same promises. But, uh, I mean, I think you're right on, on a lot of this, that money is fungible. And so you can say you're going to spend uh, a billion on things, but then things that would have been spent on anyways, you begin counting that towards the billion. And, uh, you know, in that manner, yeah, there's not the, the additional money coming because presumably all the other cities in the province, if they felt that there was just money for infrastructure coming for, from the province, you know, with no strings attached, would be lining up and saying, why did Hamilton get this special deal? I mean, the other thing, I guess, is that we're already $100 million into this project. So it's not, you know, there's already a big chunk that's, you know, it's not disappeared. It's been there doing the work, preparing and getting uh, things ready, assembling property, getting the uh, engineering plans together. Uh, but again, that's that's money that is not going to be spent in infrastructure because we've already spent it trying to get uh, this project moving. Not to mention the infrastructure that has to be done underneath the street where the LRT is built, which will be half, which will have to be done anyway. Yeah, I mean, and including through, you know, relatively older parts of the city where we can have significant infrastructure upgrades that presumably we'd be having to do anyways, uh, including with all the disruption. I mean, uh, there's clearly old infrastructure running down uh, King Street all through downtown and well down the East End that uh, is coming towards the end of its lifetime. And so digging that up and fixing it is going to happen one way or the other. But yes, you, you could do it and also have an important infrastructure project running on top of that you know, which again, if we look at other places that have invested in that in the area, including, you know, Kitchener-Waterloo, they're crowing in the paper regularly about what the economic uplift of that has been in terms of strengthening their tax base. As I mentioned, uh, this can be spent on, and it's quite clear right now, infrastructure, infrastructure and transit or solely on LRT. As we have mentioned, infrastructure and infrastructure transit are, and transit are the government responsibilities anyway. If the bridge is falling down or the road needs repaired, it will be fixed. Uh, why are we spending capital money for a legacy project on maintenance items that would be covered anyway? Why is that not resonating with Hamiltonians? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I mean, and, and you know, the sort of the additional fact that if we were to decide to hit the brakes on the LRT, uh, you know, there would be a, a significant period of settling lawsuits given contracts have been signed of various sorts. And presumably the province would ask for us to actually come up with a pretty clear plan about how we were going to spend the money on these other things, which again, uh, you know, going through the processes of approvals is, you know, punting this down the road, you know, two or three years. You know, at the very time we have a government that came out about three weeks ago with this report saying the public finances are a shambles and, you know, presumably things are going to get cut and one could imagine that this promise might also get streamlined a bit. So. I mean, there's a lot that doesn't really make sense in it, but I guess there's a couple of, of things that probably are tied to this. I mean, on the first hand, you know, the prime champions of this project you'd expect would be city council. Uh, but at every stage of making decisions on this project, there's been a significant number of councillors, including those who have voted regularly to push the project forward, who spend all their time ripping out their hair and saying why this is a terrible project. Yeah. So the people who should be the prime champions 
for the most part, I think, have been derelict in their duty, uh, given the sort of size of, of this project. Uh, I mean, secondly, I think the city's business community, which has been quite uh, in favor of this project, has been very ineffective. I think we've really seen how weak it is as a political actor in terms of being unable to develop a discourse and communicate it to the, the citizens of the city that they see our economic future is tied to these kinds of investments. You know, that this is a real project uh, that could make a difference on the employment front, on the property tax front, on really improving the, the assessment value downtown. You know, again, there, I think there's been a, a real weakness in their capacity to make the case. So you think, uh, so you would agree that city and business has done a poor job of selling this? Or is it, it doesn't matter what you say about it, if, if you don't want it, you don't want it? I mean, I think, you know... They, or they don't trust anybody. Well, I mean, there has been, you know, questions of trust in city council. But again, when you look down and city council is, you know, agreeing to a project, but at the same time they're saying this is the worst thing ever, you're forcing us to do it, uh, you know, that doesn't inspire confidence. Uh, you know, on top of that, I think people who are opposed to the LRT can play to a bunch of different constituencies. And so, I mean, we've seen a lot of the, you know, amalgamated uh, municipalities versus, you know, the old city uh, politics being played out in this, that somehow, you know, improving the tax base downtown is a, well, actually, I don't know how that's bad for tax rates in the suburbs, but, uh, you know, the argument that somehow this is going to be a train to nowhere or it's it's just going to be another boondoggle and somehow it's going to push up costs uh, in the suburbs. Uh, in parts of the city which have not had a good uh, transit service historically, this has been kind of played as, a you know, the your bus route versus the LRT downtown uh, form of, of uh, politics. And I mean, we also do have the situation that we see in Hamilton, as with, you know, centers all around the GTA of people being priced out of their neighborhoods, right, of being unable to uh, afford to buy houses in places that they bought up because of where real estate prices are going. And again, I think people who are opposed to the LRT have been effective in mobilizing the sense that, you know, they're going to build this train, but it's not you who's going to be living here much longer. Uh, you know, it's going to mean uh, significant displacement. And to the extent that... How do you argue with that, though, uh, Peter? Like, how, how, how do you, you know, then don't do it? Then make sure there's programs or ways for people like that to, to stay in their home? Because, again, you know, uh, development, improvement, and the, the line between gentrification is quite fine. How do we balance that? Well, because any because what we've been hoping for for the longest time is the prices of our of our homes would go up in Hamilton since they've fallen behind the whole province for the last twenty five years. Now that's happening. People are complaining they're being gentrified. Well, that would have happened anyway, wouldn't it have? Uh, Isn't that progress? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think you would have seen that, but I mean, there's ways in which you know councils can take moves to ensure that you have you know a mix of housing or of ensuring that when, you know, they're recouping the, the increase in property, say, in this uh, the Jamesville development uh, in this recent announcement, that they ensure that there's at least a similar number of people in affordable housing living there than before. I mean, in many ways, again, I think this comes back to a city council. If we had a city council saying that this is our development project for the future and we're going to do it right, and we have some tools when we're doing this to ensure that people don't get priced out or to deal with displacement, you know, we could have been having that discussion for the past three or four years, along with, you know, what are the best ways of ensuring businesses, uh, you know, succeed during the construction period. But rather than having those kinds of discussions, City Hall was always about, you know, where's the next off-ramp? You know, can we have this debate again in six months? It was so fun the last time. Uh, and again, mm. I think it's it's prevented us as a city of getting the most out of this moment. We haven't been doing the planning that would allow us to capture the the greatest number of benefits from this project.
again, getting back to uh, what uh, the premier said to uh, to the MPP Donna Skelly is that infrastructure, infrastructure in transit, or solely on LRT. Is there a list of shovel-ready projects if the LRT is scrapped in the sense that? You know, a year or so in, we can go, well, look at that. That's what we got instead of LRT. Uh, well, I mean, there's a list of projects kicking around City Hall. I mean, to add them up to $1 billion, I think you'd probably be just paving a lot of roads a bit sooner than they would be paved otherwise. It's maintenance. Yeah, it's probably mostly maintenance, you know. And, and you know, maybe there's, you know, there's a list of deferred maintenance that they could get to. Uh, but, you know, in many of those cases, they're going to the province and asking for a provincial share. And I suspect what would happen is that the province would say, OK, yeah, we've got we've got this one billion that we'll be holding for the next 10 years. And, and everything's and, coming out of that. Everything's coming out of that because money's yeah. fungible. And so, you know, again, I mean, uh, it's good of our MPP to go and get the word from the premier. But in some ways, this was kind of something scribbled on the back of a cocktail napkin. It's not a kind of a firm set of commitments about, you know, what it would be used for and. I mean, I guess to the credit of the sitting government, they, are, they aren't getting themselves tangled into the weeds of this really kind of destructive and Groundhog Day-like uh, politics that we have here in, in Hamilton. I mean, the, at one point, the province will see if this government says otherwise, but the province was worried about people getting around the GTA. We're growing. Uh, we need to keep the economies growing. We need to be able to get goods movements to where they have to go. We have to invest in transit, and this was part of that story. Uh, and, you know, again, uh, uh, I, there's maybe some short-term political gains for the Ford government in doing this, but there's there's not a lot for them to win. And so I, I don't think they're really that deep in making mm. binding commitments here. Uh, from a political strategy, it's brilliant, wouldn't you say, from the PCs in the sense that MP, MPP Donna Skelly has given them an off-ramp. If basically the government's just sitting there with its arms folded waiting, and if Hamilton shoots itself in the foot, that means one billion less dollars going out the door, and instead the billions going to the maintenance budget, which was there anyway. Is this, what about from a political standpoint, this move? Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly getting, uh, you know, for, for a province, uh, provincial government that wants to show that it's going to bring the deficit down. Uh, yeah, not having to spend uh, $900 million that's left in the next, you know, three, four years, five years, certainly helps uh, meet that bottom line. Uh, they don't have much to lose either if things go south and people say, wait a second, we voted against the LRT and now there's no uh, billion dollars. Uh, I mean, Donna Skelly is pretty safe in her seat and the Conservatives weren't that close to winning any of the other ones in Hamilton. So, you know, in a way they... Nothing lost. Uh, yeah, province not promise not kept, you know, is obviously is going to uh, hurt their sense of being, you know, ethical, but uh, certainly not going to hurt their electoral consideration. And in the end, if this does go south, you're not going to be able to blame the province because it'll be Hamilton that shoots itself in the foot. The province is just, okay, you don't want it, we'll take it and put it somewhere else then. Yeah, certainly. And and you could always, and I'm sure they'll be able to say, and look, yes, you know, here's a billion dollars that we spent, you know, in the, the Hamilton area over the past four years because, what you know, they're building hospitals and schools and so forth. It's not too hard to find a way of of cobbling that together. And when you get in that sort of argument about accountants, you know, from the city's point of view, you've lost. I mean, the, the public's not going to follow you in that kind of bean counting. How do you think this is going to go? Uh, we've got a hot mayoral race uh, with with a candidate that is very much against the LRT. Many have said that's really the only spoke in the platform as far as, com you know, competing with the incumbent how do you take this move this forward an election with a, a one issue uh, one issue debate i guess 
Well, I mean, I, I think as citizens, uh, you know, we didn't have a very strong uh, set of ideas about what this election was going to be about. And so in a, you know, a two, well, I mean, with an almost acclaimed uh, mayoral candidate, you know, the person running against him got to choose the issue and really made it about the LRT. Uh, you know, and that's something people are passionate about. You know, if, if they'd made the the election cats versus dogs, uh, we would have had a hard time also. <laughs> that's know. really what this is like, Peter. It's kind of like cats versus dogs. Well, yeah, because we didn't have anything else that we'd brought forward to say, here's a real issue facing the city. I mean, things like affordability, uh, safety on roads. Right? There's a number of other things that could be uh, important to us in the city, better, uh, you know, better, better HSR, but... Uh, it was really framed up about this, and because we're passionate, we just can't help ourselves. Uh, you know, people have very strong opinions about this, and so they'll trot those out. And as a result, uh, we don't get to talk about the things that are probably more important for the city, uh, or at least you know, also need to be discussed and uh, a basis of a decision between the people running. Why don't you think, as we sit back and watch what's going on in other towns and cities around us, and them? go forward with these projects with a lot less help than what we have, uh, how can they be viewing this? How, 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 can, how can outside cities be viewing us? And, and, and how can we in Hamilton view what's going on around us and not say, well, they're doing it. Why can't we? Well, I mean, I think uh, as a city and probably as like many cities, we're pretty insular. And, uh, you know, we aren't looking up at uh, Kitchener-Waterloo, and, I mean, uh, in a sense, we're not helped by the fact that neither Ottawa or Kitchener-Waterloo have their trains running yet, and so uh, we don't have those sort of immediate examples in front of us. Will we get it when Grimsby gets one? Uh, well, I, I'm kind of not waiting for LRT and Grimsby, but, uh, <laughs> but certainly those other cities are looking at us and saying, you know, we had to pay a chunk of what we're doing, and, you know, we, we, we've bought the argument about why it's going to make us better off uh, it's kind of probably makes them somewhat uh, happy to see the chumps in Hamilton who are going to get it for free turn it down because in some ways we were getting something that they had to pay for for free. This might be if it if it stalls if it cancels this could be a bigger bigger blunder than the stadium couldn't it? Well, uh, at least the stadium got built. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, in a way that was uh, you know that was fifty five million dollars out of the uh, future fund that went to build a stadium, which, you know, is nice now, although we'll see how long it lasts, <laughs> things falling down. Uh, but it wasn't a transformational economic project. I mean, this is, you know, a way that we can deal with our growing population. We can deal with, you know, what we heard out of the International Panel of Climate Change, that we have to begin to change how we get around our cities in a pretty substantial way in, in the not-too-distant future. You know, we can deal with a bunch of challenges and, and go forward, or we can pretty much have the status quo, uh, you know, but maybe pave just slightly sooner. Is this a generation away? Just uh, w will it take a generation for the naysayers to pass on, and and what we're seeing with the reju rejuvenation move into into positions of power? Um, I, I'm not sure it's actually that generational. In some ways, it's been much more geographic the mobilization, hmm. and to the extent that uh, people in the you know the amalgamated communities, but also in the sort of more distant suburbs and on the mountain in Hamilton, can be led to believe that somehow. There's some kind of downtown cabal uh, that's going to build something really useless and it's going to cost the money forever. Um, you know, as long as people can still be sold that, I, I suspect, uh, you know, we'll continue to have this debate. I mean, I think one of the benefits of uh, perhaps building the LRT is it will give, I think, a, an opportunity to say, well, no, there's actually something dynamic happening downtown. 
you know, there's something that's serving the growth of population and of uh, both business and residential assessment. Uh, it may be actually a way to, to pull the city together a bit more, you know, and particularly connect places, uh, you know, like Dundas and, uh, you know, out to uh, Eastgate, you know, much more strongly into the, the center of the city. Peter Grave has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, talking about the back and forth on LRT. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.